Please be aware that this is a podcast about sex work. Therefore, it includes strong language, particularly language related to sex and the sex industry. There will also be mentions of stigma related to sex work, as well as state violence against sex workers. Sexual violence and trafficking may also be mentioned. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Babylon, the podcast that asks who's talking about sex workers and why. My name is Vanessa Ontiveros, and I'll be your host. Throughout this series, we've been hearing about the ways that sex workers have seized the means of narration to tell their own stories. Through platforms like social media, podcasts, books, and blogs, more sex workers are able to share their experiences than ever before, and with a wider audience, too. Today, we'll be looking to see if that boon in representation has translated to an increase in political power. And we'll hear from advocates for sex workers' rights about the recent history and hopeful future of the movement. First, we'll have to define some of the political issues sex workers are facing. As we have discussed before, full-service sex work, or having sex with someone for money, is banned in pretty much the entire country, save for a few rural counties in Nevada. Sex workers' rights advocates are trying to change that by pushing for the decriminalization of sex work. Decriminalization is the removal of any penalty, civil or criminal, for an act or for prostitution. Legalization would be the imposition of rules, regulations, that kind of thing to govern the sex industry. So with legalization, which exists in places like Amsterdam and a couple other countries, we don't see any of the benefits that we see with full decriminalization. Some people just use legalization wrong because obviously if something's not criminal, it must be legal. But legalization is actually another model of governing sex work, which would mean that, you know, you might have to get licensed. You know, there would be lots of rules and regulations. Again, we wouldn't see any of the benefits because the power shifts to a third party or and or to the government. And of course, there are going to be sex workers unable or unwilling to conform with whatever laws and regulations. So we're still going to see it criminalized to a certain extent, which of course will not, we won't reap any of the benefits from that we would with decriminalization. That was Ariella Moskowitz, the Director of Communications for Decriminalized Sex Work. We first heard from her in episode one. Decriminalized Sex Work, or DSW, is a nonprofit organization that advocates for exactly what the name implies. The goal and the mission of uh, Decriminalized Sex Work is to fully decriminalize adult consensual sex work. When we talk about decriminalizing sex work, that's what we're talking about, consensual adults choosing what they do together. We are not wanting to change any laws around sexual acts or content involving minors or anything around um, coercion, uh, exploitation, trafficking. We are anti-trafficking advocates at heart. We really believe that one way to fight human trafficking is to decriminalize sex work. There is an important distinction between human trafficking and consensual sex work. Well, the key word is consent. So any type of sex work has to do with them being in a position to choose whether they are going to work with the client or not. 
where human trafficking has to do with force and coercion. So that is not sex work, that's a sex crime. And a lot of times because sex work is criminalized, people conflate even the word sex crime with sex work, where they're two very different things. That was Zola Bruce, the Director of Communications for the Sex Workers Project at the Urban Justice Center. Yes, the Sex Workers Project of the Urban Justice Center was started as an initiative to um, really serve the needs of sex workers in general, but specifically came about because of all the amount of human trafficking um, we experience when it comes to clients needing support with immigration. And overall, overall, though, we do provide free legal services, advocacy, education, and organizing supports for sex work-led organizations. And this does not matter whether they're on the choice of, cho- of, the, of the spectrum of choice, coercion, or circumstances, which we really look at it on that spectrum. But overall, we do also aim to destigmatize and decriminalize sex work and create a society, vision-wise, <laughs> that practices consent and harm reduction for all sex workers. And that would also diminish the amount of sex crimes that we experience in general in society, not just sex workers, and reduce human trafficking. Sex work and sex trafficking do sometimes get conflated. And there are some sex work abolitionists who refuse to make a distinction between the two because they do not acknowledge the fact that a person can choose to go into full-service sex work. During our conversation, Zola mentioned that some people who escape sex trafficking end up going into sex work. Here's Ariella on the complexities of trafficking. Trafficking is a very complex and nuanced issue. Um, There are tons of organizations working on it around the world. People have different strategies for ending it. One thing that we know and that evidence shows is that it's not a problem that we can necessarily arrest our way out of. So places where sex work has been decriminalized and individuals working in the sex trade don't fear interacting with law enforcement, we know that exploitation goes down. So places where somebody could come forward to say, like, let's say they are choosing to engage in sex work of their own free will. And when we talk about sex work, we talk about it on a, on a spectrum of choice, circumstance to coercion, um, being the other end of that spectrum. And so we know that places such as in New Zealand, where it's been decriminalized since 2003, sex workers feel comfortable interacting with law enforcement to let them know when actual exploitation is happening. Um, And so they can really work hand in hand. Um, And again, going back to not being able to arrest our way out of problems, yes, we want to see traffickers brought to justice. And I'm not necessarily talking about that, but we don't think that increased policing around sex is going to help anyone. There are different ways of approaching sex work reform. Full decriminalization is the one often pushed by sex workers and allies. There's also legalization, which, as Ariella said, comes with a whole host of rules and regulations, like the kinds placed on sex workers in rural Nevada. And then there's the Nordic model, aka the end-demand model, aka the entrapment model. Under that system, clients of sex workers are criminalized and arrested. While that might initially sound like a semi-fair solution, there's a reason that sex work-centered organizations oppose it. 
So this does nothing to improve health and safety of sex workers or the community. It has it, we see none of the benefits with it that we see with full decriminalization. So it has those issues on a practical level, but proponents of it, including some of the larger anti-trafficking organizations and even a lot of feminists and people who you might think would be kind of for empowering women, subscribe to that model being the best, subscribe to the belief that that model is the best because they go back to that theory that sex work is inherently exploitative. So we need to end the mail you'll hear it called the end demand model. We need to end demand. We need to arrest the Johns, arrest the clients, and then we can quote unquote save and rescue all these women who have been forced into sex work, which we know is not the case, right? The Nordic model does nothing to address the underlying reason that many people go into sex work. To make money. Just like other work. If you take away clients, then you take away sex workers' sources of income and offer them no reasonable alternatives to meet their economic needs. Ariella also said that the Nordic model attracts the kind of clients who are not afraid of being arrested. Those clients may be involved in some other criminal activity if they are willing to risk arrests like that which is why so many organizers very loudly push for decriminalization over legalization or the Nordic model. However, even with so many sex workers speaking out, the people who make the rules for sex workers are not always listening to them. In episode three, we talked about FOSTA-SESTA, FOSTA is short for Allow States and Victims to Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act and SESTA for Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act, which on the surface sound like good things. That's done on purpose, Zola says. So basically there's these long titles that say that they're creating more safety and long acronyms. And they're using safety as a a, a way to sway the public. However, is not actually creating a safer environment. It's just creating more regulations. And with the regulations, the increase in regulations is actually making it worse for sex workers and also worse for the society. The bills were signed into law in 2018 and amended Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act so that websites are liable if they are found to be facilitating sex trafficking on their sites. Ariella spoke about the effects of FOSTA-SESTA, which were pretty devastating for sex workers. We like to think that these laws are well-intentioned, right? Um, It goes back to what I was saying before, that nobody wants to see anybody trafficked and nobody wants their job to be unsafe. Like sex workers want to be safe, right? Nobody wants to see people exploited or trafficked. What these laws tried to do was to address trafficking and to address trafficking, quote unquote, over the internet. But as they were written, they failed to do that. There are laws already in place against content on the internet that somebody might not have consented. There are federal laws around the creation, selling, sharing, possession of any explicit images of children. So there are laws that exist already and existed before SESTA-FOSTA to address some of the issues that SESTA-FOSTA is trying to address. What SESTA-FOSTA did in practice and some other laws that have been introduced could do 
can with you is to chill free speech and to chill the way the internet as we know it slash want it to function functions, right? So the SESTA-FOSTA amended section 230, the Internet Decency Act, which was in place since 1996. It basically is what created the internet, right? You are saying that platforms are not liable for information that users of those platforms posted. So SESTA-FOSTA sought to amend that by saying if platforms posted anyone selling sex, prostitution right, consensual, or anyone kind of trafficking anyone, those platforms could be liable. Um, and again, this goes back to the conflation of consensual adult sex work and trafficking, because what did this do for people who were using the internet freely to do this? It kicked them off. And we know, too, that they were a lot safer. Sex workers were a lot safer when they could communicate with clients over the internet. They could get full names if they wanted and if clients were willing to give that and they could reject clients who wouldn't give full names. They could check for references with other sex workers. All of these safety nets that had kind of evolved the way you might do it for any other profession were all of a sudden taken away. Folks had the opportunity to communicate with potential clients over the internet before they met them. When you're pushed back out onto the street, as many sex workers were after SESTA-FOSTA because platforms shut down or kicked them off because of the immense fear of liability that now they could be responsible for, they were, they were pushed back out onto the street. But if you're out on the street and you're fearing arrest, like you're having a quick discussion and you're getting into a car, right? You don't know who you're getting into the car with, and a lot of people were forced back to that. As discussed in episode three, even sex workers just looking to discuss their lives online without advertising anything face censorship. This also makes it harder for sex workers to screen clients before meeting them, and sex working organizers faced digital setbacks due to the laws. Sex workers at the time and to this day have spoken out against this law. But outcry from sex workers and allies has not stopped the introduction of more potential federal legislation that poses a threat to sex workers online. In 2020, the EARNIT Act was introduced in the Senate. EARNIT is short for Eliminating Abusive and Rampant Neglect of Interactive Technologies Act, another catchy title. This proposed legislation would further amend Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act to allow increased surveillance online and make it easier for states to hold websites liable for sexual content uploaded by users. It would also create a panel to oversee the enforcement of the law and set additional rules with the stated goal of reducing child exploitation online. Zola Bruce discussed some of the potential ramifications of Earn It. Well, because actually Earn It is making it so that we literally are not earning money. I mean, right now, you know, I understand that the idea was to protect children from online sexual exploitation, but in reality, what it does threaten is free speech online and as well as privacy and security and our own digital communications. So there, ha- there are definitely ways to prevent children from being exploited. There's definitely ways for to actually target those that are pedophiles are sexual criminals that are creating these, what they call underground um, 
child sex trafficking rings, but those people are not going to be targeted online, first of all. It usually is targeted through someone who survived and can point them out because uh, a lot of times, you know, this bill is saying that they're trying to protect um, people online. I mean, there's not, there's not much protection online in general. And then if you try to use keywords like sex, sexuality, anything that has to do with sex really is what, what, what ends up being highlighted, then you're taking out a lot of sex education resources. You're taking out all of the work that sex therapists are doing. You're taking out just really anything that has to do with a really major part of our lives. None of us would have been born without sex. So to use the to to use key words and prevent people from being online expressing themselves sexually also is really not something that's going to help the not even just sex work. It's not going to help the public. Advocates suspect that like Fosta Sesta, Earnit would also do little to help survivors. And again, laws already exist that criminalize human trafficking and that law enforcement can use to catch traffickers. The legislation has yet to be voted on in the Senate, where it was introduced, or the House. Earnit is opposed by the American Civil Liberties Union, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Human Rights Watch, and many other groups who believe it poses both a threat to privacy online and the well-being of sex workers, LGBTQ plus community members, and many other marginalized groups. Because the most vulnerable members of society are the ones that laws like this go after. It has been shown that the censorship laws amplify existing imbalances in society. So it doesn't improve, the, it doesn't improve anything. It just amplifies the existing imbalances. All types of people do sex work. However, the ones that are targeted are BIPOC people. People that are like rich, white, call girls, they don't ever get, they don't ever get arrested. Why? Because they have huge, they have really rich clients and they have a lot of resources. And they're also able to, um, they don't, they have like steady clients that are paying them steady incomes. So they don't have to scrape by at all. They also have their own contracts, you know, and those are amongst between them and their client. That said, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily safer. It just means that they have more resources um, because at any, any moment there can be wage theft or somebody can decide not to pay you, um, which is actually would also get worse with the increased online censorship because if you can't get paid through Venmo or Cash App, then or if people are tracking your records now and you can't even use PayPal, then it has to be cash. And we know these days no one's using cash. So that is a huge issue, you know, like you said, you know, if the credit card companies also are not uh, are doing more investigation and not allowing people to get paid, even if they're paying their bills, then that is going to be a huge problem, which then again further exploit sex workers. Zola also told me about even more recently proposed legislation, the Safe Tech Act. It stands for Safeguarding Against Fraud, Exploitation, Threats, Extremism, and Consumer Harms Act. It would also amend Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act and carries with it risks similar to that of FOSTA-SESTA and the EARNIT Act. The unforeseen or unintended consequences of FOSTA-SESTA were many. 
but among them was the creation of a very clear enemy for the sex workers' rights movement. And nothing brings people together like a common enemy. Ariella has seen it firsthand. The organization she works for, Decriminalized Sex Work, was formed in the aftermath of Fosta Sesta's passing. I really think that Sesta Fosta brought, uh, brought this to the surface. Sesta Fosta was a huge galvanizing point for sex workers. And I think since then, as far as I can tell, it's been a much larger part of the public discourse than it ever was before. So a lot of folks who just like did their job, did their thing, you know, now that was taken away from them. And so, you know, not every sex worker is an advocate and vice versa, but it caused people to kind of say like, hey, this isn't right. Like we've been pushed to the margins for so long in so many ways. And so SESTA FASA, I think, was a, a, a pivotal point in the movement because it was a large scale effort by the government to really restrict the income and impact uh, impact the safety of sex workers. And also a lot of the quote unquote sex work that was happening on the internet was and is legal. So, you know, now people have conformed a lot of them or maybe they weren't doing full service sex work to begin with, but they're doing something that was legal. And now these platforms are shutting down and so they don't have a space to to do it in. The legislation got more people talking about the safety and well-being of sex workers. That discussion is part of what caused sex working writer Femi Babylon's Twitter account to gain popularity. There was like all this stuff going on around Backpage and and like Kamala Harris was like, I'm going to go after Backpage, I'm going to do this and you know like and all 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 that stuff was happening around that time. Suddenly, like in October, like like Fosta and Sesta was passed, either right around that same time or like right after, like Backpage was like shut down. Well, when um, Backpage was shut down, I think, or like it was, they were talking about like targeting Backpage in October 2016 or November or something like that. That's when my account first blew up with like a lot of follows and stuff like that. At the before that, I only had like 600 followers. And I wasn't really like trying to gain followers. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I just, I just, I don't, I don't care. I don't, I don't, I don't care. But like having followers is really, it has helped me. But at the time I really was trying to like blog this book and like whatever. And then like, I never thought that I would get popular, like, like how I am on Twitter because I, um, I was never popular enough on Facebook. And Femi continues to discuss sex work politics on there to this day. Writer and activist Maggie McNeil also saw a change in the political tide after the passage of Vasta Sesta. What could potentially have been the worst thing to happen to sex workers, which was Sesta Fasta, a massive law package to censor the internet, to, to try to wipe sex workers off the internet entirely. And what happened instead was it was so obviously mean-spirited and censorious and tyrannical that a lot of people saw that law and went, oh, oh, this has gone too far. And so you started seeing more reporters being skeptical of the sex trafficking claims, actually reporting, hey, this has hurt sex workers. This, this, this law is bad. You actually started having politicians popping up out of the woodwork, all of a sudden going, oh, you know, Maybe we should think about decriminalization now. 
it's a weekly thing now. I mean, it used to be that every time I saw a politician espouse some kind of pro-sex worker rights position, I'd quote it in my blog because it was, it was news. Now, there are so many of them doing it now that I'm mostly only quoting the, the really important ones, the big ones, you know, because lots of them are now saying, and that's a really, really good thing. You know, you've got these DAs that are refusing to prosecute uh, low-level prostitution offenses. You've got legislators who are introducing decriminalization bills. You've got celebrities who are coming on and saying, hey, and Americans listen to celebrities. You know, they, they probably shouldn't, but they do. Um, and so it's a good thing when, when they start coming out and, and so on. So, I mean, we're seeing these more and more support from outside the demimonde. And that's, that makes me very hopeful. As Maggie said, there are exciting changes happening politically, especially on state and local levels. Just last month, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office announced that it will stop prosecuting sex workers and dismiss over 900 current cases. Activists have pointed out, however, that that is not enough because clients can still face prosecution and sex workers have faced broken promises from politicians in the past. A lot of the advocates I spoke with, however, are hopeful that we are seeing the beginning of what could be a wave of sex worker-friendly changes in laws and policies. Storytelling has been a crucial tool for getting us here. Zola said that the Sex Workers Project at the Urban Justice Center believes that destigmatization leads to decriminalization. They have been working on a documentary series aimed at tearing down some of the stigma associated with sex work. Yeah, I just feel like destigmatization is so important because so many people are ashamed to be who they are in general in this life and specifically when it comes to human connection. I think um, with COVID, what thing that really, this pandemic really brought up here um, and what we, based on all the people that we've talked to that are both clients also in my kink community is that people feel very disassociated from their bodies when they're not able to connect with others sexually or otherwise, any type of intimacy. So I feel like sex workers are very important for our society to help people continue to, to create ways to connect. And again, unlimited ways, <laughs> not just one or two ways. Just there's many different ways you can connect with others. And I feel like our voices need to be amplified and that there needs to be there need to be um, different stories that are told about our experiences because there's so many, there's so many. Um, and I feel like many times we're not given the credit that we deserve for how we actually help others and why, you know, we do the work we do. You know, I feel like we come from many different circumstances, but regardless, options is the key. If we decide we want to do sex work and we decide we want to do it in whatever way. I mean, some people start off with street work, they end up being high, high price call, call people. And then they might even decide to start their own organization that supports the efforts of sex workers that might not even just have to do with sex. And if stories can create narratives, then they can also change them. Here's Ariella. There are lots of negative stereotypes out there about sex workers. And so changing the stories we tell 
and changing the narrative about who sex workers are and who is interacting with them is hugely important. We'll, we'll never get far if we can't change the stigma, right? Because people automatically, it's how our brains work. When something's new, it's uncomfortable. It's kind of like you can only process so much. So if you've been programmed to think that it's bad or it's wrong or people are getting hurt, there's a lot to care about in this world right now, right? So that's not like number one on your list, you might put it in a bucket. Okay, I'm kind of interested, but I'm not going to look into it now. Stories are how we start to care about things. Stories are how we start to see the humanity in others. Most people don't really see the humanity in an issue by reading the statistics and reading all the numbers. Yes, we could bang you over the head a million times. Hopefully it does work because I do do it by saying that decriminalizing sex work has immense public health and safety benefits and immense benefits for sex workers themselves and immense benefits for people who are being exploited. But until you can really put a face and a story to that, it doesn't really work its way into your heart. Both Decriminalized Sex Work and the Sex Workers Project at the Urban Justice Center have resources for allies on their websites, which will be linked in the show notes. These are for people who have not only heard, but listened to the stories of sex workers and want to create a safer world. I started this project because I too believe in the profound power of storytelling. I think it's what sets us apart from every other species on the planet, our ability to tell complex stories. But the stories we tell are only as good as the epilogues we create when they are done. Thank you for listening to this, the final episode of the Babylon Podcast. Babylon is an independent podcast that I wrote, edited, and produced as my final honors project at the University of Arizona. If you want to know more, you can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at BabylonPod. Special thanks to Roxandra Guidi for advising this project. The music is Iron by Crowander. A very special thanks to Ariella Moskowitz, Zola Bruce, Femi Babylon and Maggie McNeil for appearing on this episode. You can find Decriminalized Sex Work online at decriminalizedsex.work. They are on Twitter at decrimsex and on Instagram at decrimsexwork. You can find the Sex Workers Project at the Urban Justice Center online at swp.urbanjustice.org. They are also on Twitter at ujcsexworkers and on Instagram at sexworkersproject. You can find Femi Babylon on Twitter at ThoughtScholar. That's Thought spelled T-H-O-T. You can also find her online at ThoughtScholar.com. You can find Maggie McNeil on Twitter at Maggie underscore McNeil. That's M-A-G-G-I-E underscore M-C-N-E-I-L-L. You can also find her blog, The Honest Courtesan, at MaggieMcNeil.com. Truly, from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank everyone who spoke with me for this project. And for everyone listening, thank you so much.